The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar operates a 260-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules, every one of which is made in their Texas facility, offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Visit Mission Solar at the upcoming Solar Power International Conference at booth 3975. That's booth 3975. Stop by, check out their modules, say hello to the friendly staff. And if you uh, can't make it there, go to their website. Mission's high-power modules can be found at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, Al Gore is back in the spotlight with an inconvenient sequel. We'll revisit Gore's role as the unofficial spokesman for climate action. Then Energy Secretary Rick Perry didn't give away any nuclear secrets in his 22-minute call with Russian phone pranksters last week. But that's probably the least of our worries. We'll talk about a blockbuster new piece from Michael Lewis and Vanity Fair about the crazy transition, or perhaps the lack thereof, in the Department of Energy. Finally, Britain makes some bold battery moves. We'll glance at a new plan to spend hundreds of millions of pounds on battery storage and also ban gas-powered cars. So uh, in that prank phone call I just referenced, Perry was pitched on a fuel made of Ukrainian homebrew and pig manure. It turns out to be exactly what fuels me on our recording days. I sent a batch over to my co-host, but I haven't heard back if they got it. J- Catherine? Delish. <laughs> you know, that may be, uh, I haven't gotten a response from Jigger. That's probably because he's traveling. He's on no, the road I think, today. I, I, I think I'm still choking on it. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you? You're like in a lounge somewhere in, in New York City. You just got off an airplane. Yeah, I'm in the United um uh, club lounge. Well, uh, the, I'm sure the coffee there is just as good as my batch of pig manure. And uh, when you get home, you'll find a, a package with a bunch of jars. Catherine's in Washington, D.C., of course, sipping I don't know what. How's it going? Great. Thank you. Good. Well, um, let's get into it. It's been It's been more than a decade since An Inconvenient Truth came out, a film that single-handedly boosted public perception of climate change and, and revamped Al Gore's image as a climate crusader. And there's still an active debate about how effective Gore has been in that role over the last decade. So on August 4th, an inconvenient sequel will hit select movie theaters, thrusting Al Gore into the center of the climate conversation. He's been doing a ton of interviews lately. 11 years later, uh, a number of the predictions about temperature rise and flooding in the first movie have come true, except I don't think that anyone at that time could envision Donald Trump assembling a team of climate supervillains to erase any mention of climate change from the public square. We are not going to do a movie review. Rather, we're going to use this as a chance to talk about Gore himself. You know, how effective has he been as a messenger over the last decade? Whether it's warranted or not, he is kind of a polarizing figure. Um, we'll talk about why that's the case. And and even the most ardent supporters of climate action are are asking if Gore is the best person to represent the movement at this point in time. A lot of media critics, journalists, climate communicators are kind of walking through this question. And uh, the most comprehensive piece, I think, comes from Emily Atkin over the New Republic, who highlighted a range of opinions from envir- environmentalists, some of whom aren't the biggest fans. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that piece. So what do you think, Catherine? Do you think it's even fair that we're singling out Gore? Like, is this, 
you know, I, I think that there's something to this, but others think it's kind of an artificial debate. What, what's your what's your reaction to this? Yeah. So first, oh, I'm a big booster of him. And the reason is he spent over 40 years working on climate. He when he was a freshman in Congress in 1976, he held the first congressional hearings on climate change. He's been doing this for a really long time. In 92, when he wrote Earth in the Balance, which is really the book that got me the most engrossed in climate change and working on it. Um, it was the first book to hit the bestseller list since John F. Kennedy's uh, Profiles on Courage. I mean, it was an enormous hit. At that point, George H.W. Bush called him Ozone Man. I mean, he has been working on this for a long time. It's not like Inconvenient Truth was the first thing, even though it did win an Academy. He got the Nobel Peace Prize along with the IPCC folks. So he's been working on this for decades and decades. I think um, he is one of those voices. He is definitely supported by the Sierra Club's Mike Brune and Bill McKibben of 350.org. And I think there are also other folks that are repelled by him. And that has always been the case. And the folks who are repelled by him... Um, some of them are coming from the left, and it's not that they like dislike Gore himself. It's that because he's attracted so much criticism, they don't think that he should, you know, be taking up the. Cl- he shouldn't be the spokesman for um, the climate fight. You know, they're more worried about perception than Gore himself. Uh, it seems like there is a little bit more backlash lately, just because of the 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 last decade of smears against Gore himself. So I would just say that at a certain level that Gore is the primary operator and the reason and he's just one of lots and lots of people who are really strong leaders and advocates for climate change mitigation. But on some level, because he has diplomatic credibility, he was the vice president of the United States. He knows world leaders. He runs in those circles. He is very large presence at the World Economic Forum. He speaks with credibility. People believe him and trust him. So on some level, he is a very good person to have in there fighting these fights. At the same time, remember, he runs the Climate Reality Project, which so far has educated 12,000 people in 33 countries on climate and what the, you know, all of his slide presentations, my son actually took the class in Denver not long ago with a thousand people that he said ranged from ages eight to 80 and was texting me saying, hey, mom, Al Gore is so cool. And I was like, I'm glad you figured that out on your own. But he is a person who operates at the highest levels of government, also tries to make sure that the message gets down to the grassroots and to young people. Jigger, what do you think? I think this is a microcosm of Democrats writ large, right? I mean, what do you mean? Well, when Republicans have one of their own, you know, really get trashed, they sort of rally around them and like show how really conservative they are. Whereas with, with liberals, like if someone becomes the least bit controversial, they're like throwing them under the bus right away, et cetera. And it just feels like Al Gore has done nothing but like provide service. You know, plain and simple. I mean, I, I I have been a big critic of his in the 2009, where I thought he should have been using the climate wealth message um, instead of shared sacrifice. Um, and I won that debate. And the, the current Paris Agreement is all about the cost of LEDs coming down and the cost of renewable energy coming down, et cetera. But that's, that's just a small little debate. I mean, to suggest that we should distance ourselves from the former vice president of the United States is ridiculous. You know, Gore was one of the first people in 2008 to issue a call for 100% renewable energy. 
And uh, I think he said in 2008 he wanted to get 100% renewables in a decade. Um, that was, you know, a pretty crazy target to throw out there at that, t- particularly at that time. He was called a nut job. And you know what? Guess what? We're actually having that conversation for real. Now, of course, that's a serious debate about whether we, you know, that's that's a goal that we want to try to achieve. But like, there's a there's a real debate over whether or not that 100% target is possible. And he was one of the first people to actually draw that into the mainstream conversation. And the fu- and the fact that most of the mainstream politicians, starting with President Obama, basically threw him under the bus after that presentation is the thing that irks me the most, right? We had to wait until Martin O'Malley in the 2016 campaign brought up being fossil fuel free and, you know, Bernie Sanders taking up the mantle for us to be able to have that conversation again. I mean, it's just maddening to me that like, you know, he was trying to be a bold, thoughtful, forward thinking leader. And people basically just laughed at him and said, "Um, we're going to stick to all of the above. Thank you very much. But he has been working behind the scenes for years and has obtained real tangible results. So I think that, yes, in some ways, the political system has not been kind to him. But in other ways, he's been able to continue to move forward. One um, argument that annoys me, Jigger, is the issue about him having wealth himself, which is something that you actually promote. He's a big green tech investor. He's invested in you know, uh, in vehicles and sustainability and all kinds of other um, investments that I think are great because he's putting his money where his mouth is and good for him for being able to do well by doing good. Now, that brings me to a few points that I wanted to make because I, I do think that Gore has changed his investment thesis and his personal behavior only when under pressure. And that's probably one of my biggest criticisms of Gore. So, Firstly, he deserves an enormous amount of credit for making climate change an issue that people talked about. Like straight up, there's no doubt about his influence. And after Inconvenient Truth, he worked his ass off to keep it front and center. I think that he is a flawed character, though. You know, he's rich. He's got big houses. He only bought solar for his 10,000 square foot home when pressured. And he's entitled to do whatever he wants with his wealth, of course. But there's absolutely no doubt that it kind of hurts his credibility. And we're in an era of backlash against elites. And so Gore, a guy who bought a 6,500 square foot seafront home in California for $8.8 million and who hangs around with other celebrities that like to talk big about climate but who live pretty lavish lifestyles is the perfect target at this point in time. So I give him credit for pushing climate front and center, but it's really hard to get past those contradictions, particularly when there's so much anger about elites. And I think that just sort of damages his cause generally, which may or may not bring right, it be his that's... fault. Wait, but I just have one more point because that may or may not be his fault in terms of how he's perceived because there's no doubt that the backlash against him is only partially of his own doing. The hatred for Gore is this direct result of a massive spending campaign by the Koch network to taint anyone working on climate issues, to tear the issue out of the congressional agenda. And Gore was just savaged. And to focus on Gore without sort of taking a step back and looking at the money that was spent to smear him and other people working on climate, I think that would be short-sighted. So I've, you know, I do have a critique of Gore. I think it's healthy and warranted to talk about his role. Uh, but I think it's important for us to remember the bigger picture, that he was the target of a lot of money. Right. But this goes back to the Democrat-Republican thing, right? I mean, 
you know, what he should have done was feature his wealth, right? He should have said, look, you know, like he didn't have a lot of money. He made all that money basically on Apple stock when he joined the board of Apple right after he lost the presidency. And, you know, he should have said, look, I'm a climate millionaire. And he should have said, you know, like, look, it doesn't matter what my carbon emission footprint is. It doesn't matter if I go into private jets. It doesn't matter if I fly around the world. What matters is, is that through my actions, we are dramatically reducing carbon emissions and, you know, stiffening up policy that saves gigatons of carbon. Yeah, but I still think that his personal lifestyle makes him kind of a a, 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 a little bit of a damaged vessel, a communications Well, vessel. but that's because he refuses to talk about his wealth. He refuses to make these arguments. I mean, Donald Trump clearly didn't care about talking about his wealth or talking about his elite status or anything else. And I just think that if he would feature his flaws instead of actually, you know, declining to talk about them, that they wouldn't be flaws anymore. So I think you're absolutely right about the left. You know, anytime there's sort of a whiff of controversy about someone, the left typically distances themselves from that person. And it's the exact opposite strategy of what folks on the right do. With that said, I don't see a lot of people within the environmental movement truly rallying around other effective messengers, people like Bob Inglis, or, you know, maybe the folks working on a carbon tax at like the R Street Institute, which certainly they're not really climate advocates. Per se. I mean, Bob Inglis certainly is a climate advocate, but like the folks at the R Street Institute aren't necessarily climate advocates per se. But there are plenty of like really effective messengers on the right that, you know, environmentalists refuse to rally around, even though uh, you have these, you know, attacks on their their you know beloved icons on the left. Well, the thing is, Stephen, back when I was first started lobbying, and Newt Gingrich was the speaker of the House of Representatives, he and Nancy Pelosi sat together and talked about climate change. It was not polarized the way it is now, and the reason it's polarized is the Coke brothers have put in a ton of money, and the and the fossil guys have put in a ton of money to try to discredit people's voices. And so all of a sudden, it became something that no, nobody could talk about together. And it's not his fault that people aren't doing that. I think you're right, though, that there are a lot of different messengers that we can bring in, um, a lot of young people. And it's also the message and the actions can be very disaggregated. So the state and local level is just as important as it would be to try to get some big carbon tax through, which is not going to happen anytime soon. So in 2007, when um, I watched Inconvenient Truth, um, we bought a copy of it for every employee at Sun Edison. Um, I was really proud of that. I'm going to do that again this time around when this movie comes out. I think it's going to be a hugely inspiring movie. I think it's going to have the same effect that Inconvenient Truth did around the world. And around the petty politics of the U.S., like I don't think Al Gore belongs to the U.S. anymore. I think he's a global figure that is doing extraordinary work around the world. And, you know, I'm just like, you know, like I'd, if I was him, I'd say I'm done with D.C., right? Like he's he's focused on helping the U.K. with their, you know, EV, you know, EV only strategy after 2040 or India or China or the places. I mean, like he doesn't have to like deal with the petty politics of D.C. Yeah, I totally agree. He's a global figure. Well, when um, we've had a chance to watch the movie, we'll probably do a review and talk about um his strategy in telling this story, which attempts to spin a much more positive message. We're certainly in a different world in terms of solutions that we were in 2006. So, um, you know, Gore is doing his best in interviews and in the film to paint a positive message. I will say just as an aside, wrapping up here, uh, 
Bob Inglis, the Republican congressman from South Carolina who has been a fierce climate messenger, was also uh, pushed out of office, primaried because of the Koch network. And they're, they're spending on to defeat anyone who was bold enough to talk about climate change. So this, is, this the conversation that we're having is a product of that. This podcast is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy. You know, America's solar industry employs a lot of people, over 260,000 people and growing. And Mission Solar is one of those proud employers. The company's 260 megawatt solar manufacturing facility supports local U.S. manufacturing, engineering, and office jobs in San Antonio, Texas, directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. Mission Solar's Texas-based location makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. And Mission Solar's in-house research and development laboratory keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality modules possible. Come meet the Mission Solar team at Solar Power International in Las Vegas from September 10th through the 13th. Solar Power International is the premier solar event and uh, Mission Solar is going to be there with a bunch of members from their team, and you can go say hello and check out their high-power solar modules. They're going to be at booth 3975, so remember that, 3975. If you're not going to be at the event, no problem. Go to their website and check out their products at missionsolar.com. Thanks to Mission Solar for supporting the Energy Gang. Now back to the show. Forget Russian hackers. Energy Secretary Rick Perry should be worried about Russian phone pranksters. Wait, actually, don't forget about Russian hackers. We're going to get to that in a second. So last week, Secretary Perry got on the phone with Ukraine's prime minister and an interpreter to talk about fossil fuel exports, the Paris climate deal, and a new biofuel mix, uh, which I mentioned at the top of the show. It turned out to be a hoax from two Russian tricksters who were engaged in good old-fashioned prank phone calling. E&E News first broke the story this week. We mentioned the call because it opened a tiny window into Perry's thinking. Um, meanwhile, Michael Lewis, this you know the incredible journalist that most of you probably know, he authored Moneyball and The Big Short, among many other books, opened up a giant window into the DOE this week in a major story for Vanity Fair. He profiles the chaotic and, in some ways, non-existent transition at the agency, and uh, I guess a prank phone call is the least of our worries. So just quickly to the call, Catherine, what did this fabricated phone call with Ukraine's prime minister tell us about Perry's diplomatic priorities? I think the main thing it showed is that there was not the appropriate staffing. And I don't know what that means for DOE. But I mean, I think that the vetting of this phone call was not done correctly so that he got on really thinking he was with someone that he was not on with. So I think the staffing issue is a problem and how they, you know, how they get people on the phone. Uh, the other thing that really rubbed me the wrong way is he kept saying the Ukraine and it's Ukraine, as you called it, uh, Stephen, Ukraine, which is a sovereign state and not an annex of somebody else. So um, that really bugs me when he says the Ukraine. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I can't really speak to what the policies are that he was talking about. He was answering their questions. And, and of course, he was answering really thinking he was speaking to the prime minister. So it wasn't that there was a specific ideology to that. It really felt like um, something that he was doing completely without understanding who he was on the phone with. And I don't think that that was his fault. Yeah, there's a tendency to kind of poke fun at Rick Perry, because historically, he's been a little easy to poke fun of given his relationship with DOE. But uh, 
you know, this this was a vetting issue. This was a staffing issue, as you say. Like, clearly someone should have played a more active role in, um, uh, you know, doing the work for Perry before he got on this call. With that said, he, he made a number of interesting statements. He talked a lot about coal, oil, gas, and nuclear. Didn't really talk about renewable energy. He discussed natural gas exports and coal exports. He basically apologized for stepping away from the Paris Accord. Maybe maybe he didn't apologize, but he kind of danced around the issue, and he said that he hoped that stepping away from the Paris Accord won't have a negative impact with our relationship with Ukraine. Uh, Fascinating. So there's a little bit of an apologetic tone in there. And uh, he said, we try to divorce the politics from this and just let our record stand. I don't know what that record is. Maybe that we're dropping emissions currently. Uh, He did talk about cyber threats. Of course, Ukraine has faced numerous grid cyber threats from Russia. That's a huge issue there. And in fact, experts warned that Russia is testing out those cyber threats in Ukraine and going to target the U.S. And the fact that Perry brought that up is is kind of interesting. Well, and it was particularly chilling that the people on the phone were Russian. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I just think this is an on story. I think people get pranked all the time. And, you know, I just don't know that we should stay too long on that particular topic. Um, I thought the Michael Lewis story was far more interesting. Yep, agreed. And that's what I was going to transition to. I do disagree a little bit. I don't think this is a non-story because uh, the fact that Perry was allowed to take this call uh, – you know, is a little bit alarming. And, uh, you know, his quotes do give us a small glimpse into, the, you know, the, the his diplomatic thinking when talking to other countries about energy. But I agree, let's move on. So, um, you know, this week, Vanity Fair published a blockbuster story from Michael Lewis about what's been happening in DOE. It's a fantastic piece of reporting, and it ties together what we've been hearing for months There's really no plan to run the Department of Energy. The piece details the worrisome lack of knowledge about the agency from ARPA-E to nuclear weapons and waste and details the poor transition. As one nonpartisan expert monitoring the government put it in the story, quote, the actual government has not really taken over. It's kindergarten soccer. Everyone's on the ball. No one is at their positions. But I doubt Trump sees the reality. Everywhere he goes, everything is going to be hunky-dory and nice. No one gives him the bad news. All right, Jigger, what did we learn from this story? Anything new in here jump out at you? Well, I had been hearing the pieces of the story um, for a long time. And I think Michael, you know, frankly, focuses on topics that have already been covered. I think his brilliance is really the narrative and telling the story as opposed to sort of the breaking news. Um, You know, I think that what it talks about is really confirming our deepest fears around this administration, which is that they just don't care. It's just so sad. And then the other piece of the the article, which I thought was awesome, was just it was one of the largest. It was one of the greatest sort of full throated defenses of the Department of Energy that I had heard in a very long time. Yeah, it's interesting because um, the article did confirm a lot of what I'm hearing from people who have left the department who say that it is an empty shell, that there's no leadership. Those are are the stories I'm hearing from people who are leaving. But I've also talked to a lot of people who are staying there and who are career employees and who want to stay there. And they're finding ways to get their jobs done. They're finding ways to continue their work. They're finding ways to message what they do differently. Not that it's telling something that's not true, but that's actually just speaking to the ideology of the people that are in there now, and there are very few of them. But for example, I'm on um, 
Grants.gov, which gives you announcements of grants every day that have been released by different agencies. And it has been, the Department of Energy has been pulling back on a lot of grant announcements, canceling them. But today, there was a there was a funding opportunity issued from ARPA-E, which is a program that the president zeroed out in his budget request, and they're issuing funding announcements. So that spoke to the fact that there is somebody in there getting work done and continuing to make the case that it's important work. I think that's exactly right. I agree with both of your assessments. And largely, everything that I'm hearing coming out of the department is consistent with this story as well. I'll just go back to what Jigger said. I think the most alarming piece of this story among many pieces is that many of the folks who are coming in uh, as political appointees within the Trump administration do not give a damn about what DOE does. I mean, the, the story in here of uh, Thomas Pyle, who was heading up the transition, who who basically like snubbed Ernest Moniz. You know, they had all this documentation. They were willing to work on with with uh, Pyle for multiple days to help him understand the agency. I think he took like an hour meeting, didn't uh, take notes, didn't ask any questions, just blatantly didn't care and snubbed a very important, renowned official, uh, someone with just deep institutional and technical knowledge about how to run DOE. That, to me, was probably one of the most alarming pieces of this story. Now, I think it's extraordinarily important to not, um, you know, paint with too broad a brush strokes and say, like, uh, all these political appointees are coming who are coming in don't care. Because in a number of conversations, I've heard that uh, you know, folks on the transition team and who are now political staffers, like, are thoughtful. They're asking good questions. They are having productive meetings. But there are there's still a contingency of folks who just sort of inherently see government as bad, don't want to understand it, and only see slashing or snubbing as an option. So um, I thought he, he captured that quite nicely. Well, I think he also captured, you know, the role of DOE quite nicely. I mean, people had always been talked about. Uh, people have always talked about how um, DOE really, you know, runs our nuclear arsenal. But I think he went into great detail about, you know, how that works and what the risks look like, and you know, and what it really means to um, to be at uh, DOE at the helm of this large enterprise and you know deal with these risks um, head on. I mean, I, I do think that you know it's sad that he didn't spend too much time on climate change in the piece, because to me, that was one of the largest risks. And, um, and where RPE and others, I think, are having a bigger role, but I guess it just didn't make for great prose. Well, and I'm hoping that the people who are in there are learning and starting to appreciate what DOE does and what those ongoing projects were. I was at um, the DOE Future Market Workshop yesterday that was co-hosted by the Siebel Energy Institute, and it was held by the Energy Policy and Systems Analysis Shop. Eric Shake put it on, a, a good friend of mine. And Travis Fisher, who is in charge of that grid study, the grid reliability study, spoke uh, and said, look, these efforts have to be combined. This is an important conversation on where markets are going and how we get more flexible um, regulation. And the grid study is not one and done, but this is something that is iterative. So I felt like when he said that, it was a very different uh, narrative than when the secretary put out that memo about grid reliability and that maybe there is some le learning based on what the career people have been working on for so long. Yeah, uh 
Travis Fisher is uh, a, a very smart guy. He is a, a strong free market proponent. He used to work at the Institute for Energy Research. He was at FERC, and I think he's a very thoughtful guy about the role of distributed resources, uh, while also, uh, you know, clearly trying to preserve free market principles. Um, you know, he's very knowledgeable about how uh, an agency like FERC operates, and from my conversations with folks, he's been one of the the people within DOE on this transition team who's, you know, been in there asking very. Uh, thoughtful questions and sort of trying to trying to figure it all out. So um, I think it's important not to look at the read this Michael Lewis story and say like, oh, every person that's coming in from the Trump administration just wants to kill DOE and doesn't know what they're talking about. I mean, there are very smart people who are coming into the agency and, and putting work into thinking about the future of DOE. But uh, I, I will tell you that his, his story backs up a lot of the stories that I am hearing. And he, he pulled together a lot of those threads very nicely. And the alarming picture that he paints, I think, is fairly accurate. Yeah, no, I mean, just to be clear, though, I I do think that the vast majority, if not all of the Trump folks are not thinking about the future of DOE. And so like, you know, the fact that you get one or two stories that are positive here and there is people grasping for straws. The vast majority of the programs there literally have no leadership. I mean, the person who runs the loan guarantee program has not been told what to do. I mean, it's just it 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 is embarrassing what is going on at DOE right now and and the folks that I'm talking to may say nice things every once in a while just because it's just really hard to work for a place where you can't say anything nice. But no, this is this is historically bad in terms of a transition, right? We have entire like nonprofit agencies set up to make sure these transitions are done smoothly. And this has just been a heroic train wreck. Yeah, and I would also say um, it, it gives a window into how a transition from one government to another is supposed to occur. So the Bush to Obama transition was very thoughtful, and the Obama team learned from what the Bush team had put together and and worked with them very closely, and it did not happen in this case. Let's take a quick hop over to the UK now, where some groundbreaking policy is taking shape. In the last week, the government put together a plan to phase out diesel and gasoline cars by 2040, and also announced an ambitious plan to make distributed battery storage ubiquitous in homes and businesses. In order to hit the transportation goal, municipalities uh, must now help by crafting policies to cut down on air pollution. This is a big pollution play. Uh, You know, European dependence on diesel has come back to bite it. And uh, France and the UK are the latest to try to phase out those uh, vehicles. And in order to boost storage, too, the UK grid regulator needs to create new rules to help batteries get paid in the market. And they're going to focus a lot on behind the meter batteries. Let's start with the storage piece. Catherine, this just this seems to be one of the most ambitious storage policies that I've ever seen. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, and I love the way that they're doing it, uh, using all the tools that they can, one being, you know, putting real dollars into R&D, uh, the second making real goals and mandates, putting those into place. And then finally, what I love, of course, is the market mechanisms, which is Ofgem, the Office of Gas and Electric Markets, which is like our FERC, is doing 39 
measures, part of which is to try to clarify the regulatory status of storage um, over the next year, um, making 50% of their balancing capacity from demand side management by 2020. And that would include behind the meter storage and all kinds of other distributed energy resources. And then they're going to put together a whole new system operator by next April. So in my mind, it covers those buckets that are really important to really scale. Ofgem issued this white paper as part of the plan, and they detailed many of those proposed market changes. And it just it's it's really a incredible list because they look at everything from speeding up the licensing process and reviewing the planning process to improving the interconnection process. Um, As you said, there's more than two dozen recommendations in here for what the market operator can do. Um, it just it's the probably the boldest national framework that I've seen for promoting storage. And interestingly, like they keep couching this in UK, the UK's industrial strategy, right? It's new industrial strategy. So they're talking about um, energy independence, you know, customer energy independence and distributed energy as a booster of uh, customer wealth. Well, they're also talking about this in terms of air quality. So 9,000 people in London die every year prematurely because of bad air quality. So I think that's really important. This is about, you know, this is about pollution. Jigar, you're, you're, you're constantly talking about this stuff in terms of air quality and health benefits. Both of these policies, the uh, phase out of uh, internal combustion vehicles and also the, the battery storage policy revolve around health impacts. Yeah. Any it, response? Well, I mean, I... I have a lot of responses Um, (laughs) for the first. I mean, because the UK has the national health service and pays for all of the healthcare costs, like they actually benefit the crown to like actually um, reduce healthcare costs. And so it's a far more logical process in the UK than it is in the United States. Um, The other thing I would say is it just drove home to me how completely dysfunctional the U S system is. Um, Michael Lewis had this piece, uh, this part in his piece around how the electric utility CEOs came by and DOE was talking to him about cybersecurity. And the CEOs were sort of laughing about how it was sort of kind of important, but, you know, was it really something they had to focus on? And they gave them, they gave them all like, I think, a a security clearance for a day and talked about all of the cyber attacks that the U.S. government had thwarted and they were just shocked. and that's when, you know, like they realized that we needed more national policies in the U.S. And I just I couldn't even imagine how to get Rev to work in New York, let alone getting utility companies in the U.S. to pay their fair share for the value that battery storage is providing to the grid or the healthcare system. Well, I suppose that people are hoping FERC, with its notice of proposed rulemaking, will do something similar to the UK. They're, they're not focused on, you know, air quality. They're just focused on market rules and, and participation. But I suppose you could have a similar impact, just taking a different route. Uh, Catherine, is FERC's NOPER um, going to get us anywhere near where the UK wants to go? I honestly think the UK is going to work a lot faster. I mean, they're looking at 
their demand side management doing 50% of their balancing capacity by 2020. And I don't think FERC is anywhere near there. I think with this NOPER, they may even end up bifurcating it so that they deal with grid scale energy storage services separate from DER aggregation, which is all the behind the meter stuff. I think because, and and I would say that speaks to the fact that states have a huge amount of impact too. So it's not just about FERC being able to do this on its own. The states are having an enormous amount of putting a lot of pressure on FERC um, to allow states to do what they want to do. And DER and DER aggregation is going is a big deal. There's a lot of tension between state and federal jurisdiction in that. You know, storage seems to be the next smart meter. A decade ago, eight years ago, everyone was talking about the smart meter as enabling the next generation electricity system. And as this off-gem report points out, it's now battery storage uh, seen as the catalyst for remaking the electricity sector. Go read this this uh, paper. We're going to have it on the website in the show notes. It's a pretty remarkable document because of the way they describe storage as a transformative technology and the amount of rules that they're going to attempt to change to promote distributed storage. And again, it's couched in this in- industrial policy which probably makes it more important. Um, and just quickly to the you know the phase out of uh, diesel and, and gasoline cars, Jigger, is this fast enough? I mean, people say the 24 tar- 2040 target isn't fast enough. It's getting some criticism from environmentalists, but others are saying, you know, this is you know this is in line with where we need to be. It's still pretty bold that they would be talking about this target in the first place. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, it. I think that it's important to note that there's a lot of people that get affected by these policies. That's why these types of policies are so important, right? I mean, gas station owners, I mean, my cousin owns gas stations in, you know, the US, right? They need to know that in 2040, they're going to ban petrol cars, right? I mean, I think that there's a level of planning required for this kind of transition, which is, you know, why I was so critical of the Obama administration and Moniz about this sort of incremental step change that we keep making. Um, But I think to your other point around smart grid versus batteries, I mean, batteries are a real technology that provides um, sort of generation, right? It allows you to fill in gaps and then actually accept power, whereas smart grid requires um, the utilities to actually do something proactive with the data to be able to get the benefits out of it, which is why I was so critical of smart grid for so long, not because it's a bad approach, but just because I don't trust the utility companies to do anything positive with it. So the UK is not really working in a vacuum either. Um, France already banned uh, diesel and petrol cars by 2040 as well. And I would just speak to the fact that Europe is heavy, heavy diesel dependent. 50% of their new cars purchased in 2016 were diesel cars. Over the last 30 years, they've been doing the switch from gas to diesel. So it is a much bigger issue over there than it is here. We only have 1% of diesel cars. So I just think that that's another whole aspect of this is shifting from fuel-centric cars to EV. All right. Well, um, let's wrap it up, folks. Let's. Jigger has got to be on his way. He's got to get out of that airport lounge um tell us your story what tell us something we don't know well you know there's a lot of folks that have been complaining about the new york um 
uh, zero emission credit uh, being used to protect the nuclear plants. I think there were a lot of folks who thought that it wouldn't hold up to uh, legal scrutiny. Um, uh, yesterday, a federal judge dismissed all claims in a suit against New York State's zero emissions credit program, claiming that states really can do whatever they want on the electricity grid. Catherine, what's your story? Yeah, I wanted to highlight uh, a new project. It's going to be the largest wind project in the U.S. and the second largest in the world. It's called the Wind Catcher Energy Connection. It's a $4.5 billion project that AEP, Public Service of Oklahoma, and Southwestern Electric Power are investing in. They expect to save consumers over $7 billion net. Um, It's 2,000 megawatts or 9 million megawatts megawatt hours that they expect to generate, um, 800, two and a half megawatt turbines. And it's a, Invenergy is developing it with uh, GE Renewable Energy. And it's, it's pretty exciting. They have started working on it already. It should be complete by 2020. I just got a little recommendation. So we're trying to cross-pollinate our podcast here. We recommend all our Interchange listeners listen to the Energy Gang. Uh, I recommend checking out the Interchange because we got another interview uh, on the 100% renewable stuff. Of course, a couple weeks ago, we had Mark Jacobson on. Got a ton of response, I think like 450 comments. It might be reaching 500 by now. And we brought Christopher Clack on earlier this week, and we walked through his criticisms of Jacobson's modeling, have gotten a pretty good response to that. And I think those two interviews together balance out the debate nicely. We are uh, attempting to get beyond the you know ferocious debate on twitter and on blogs and to try to have real rational conversations about the pathways that we're setting for ourselves and i hope you go check it out that's the interchange podcast and we just posted it this week so that's going to do it for us Catherine. you got to jump off to a conference yourself where are you headed uh the sepa grid evolution uh conference i'm going to be moderating a panel on consumer engagement yeah i'm bummed i couldn't get down there for that one that looks like a good event Well, have fun there. Jigger, go on your merry way. Uh, What are you up to after you leave that lounge? Make sure you get some some coffee and some breakfast first. Seriously. I'm going to go downtown and have a couple of meetings. All right, great. Well, uh, I'm going to sign off here, get this podcast edited, and get it up for you. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Mission Solar for sponsoring the show. Of course, give us a rating and a review on iTunes. It's hugely important for expanding our audience. Find us on the podcast app of your choice. Send us an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We love to hear anything you have to say. Criticize us, berate us, uh, compliment us, send us some ideas, whatever you want to do. We can handle it. Um, Have a good week, everybody. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. 